Welcome to Middle East Matters, a new podcast from the Middle East Initiative at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. My name is Tarek Massoud. I'm a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and the faculty director of the Middle East Initiative. In this podcast, we'll bring you conversations with scholars, newsmakers, and artists from one of the world's most exciting and dynamic regions, the Middle East. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, please be sure to subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular streaming services. You can also find our episodes on our website at belfercenter.org MEI. And please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Middle East underscore HKS. In this episode of Middle East Matters, Karim Haggag and I spoke with the renowned Arab journalist Mina Al-Urebi, editor-in-chief of the United Arab Emirates' premier English-language newspaper, The National. We discussed the 2020 presidential election and the season of political ferment and upheaval in the United States, as well as the state of the Arab world today, and in particularly uh, Mina's home country of Iraq. Please enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to this fifth installment in our series of conversations with Arab thought leaders on the 2020 U.S. election. Something tells me that this is a topic that is of more than minimal interest to most of you right now. So what we've been doing is that each week we've been meeting with leading Arabs from the worlds of policy, practice, the world of ideas, to explore their perceptions of the current electoral season in the United States, to explore their sense of where they see the world's sole superpower heading, and what they think all of this means for the future of the Middle East. So far in this series, Iraqi Prime Minister Ayad Alawi, the Emirati intellectual Abdul Khaliq Abdullah, the Kuwaiti journalist Ahmed Shahabuddin, and the former Egyptian foreign minister, Nabil Fahmi. And those conversations will soon be available on our website and other streaming platforms. We also have some exciting conversations lined up for the coming weeks because this is an election that never ends. Uh, so we'll next week speak to the Lebanese journalist, Raghda Dergham, and then we'll speak to the uh, Saudi uh, editor, Mohammed Al-Yahya. And we also have a conversation that was postponed with uh, the noted Palestinian uh, leader and intellectual, uh, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, which we're working now to reschedule, and we really hope you'll join us for those. I am joined in this endeavor, as always, by my uh, co-host and partner in, uh, in virtue, not partner in crime, uh, Karim Haggag of the American University in Cairo School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, which is a co-sponsor of this endeavor. Uh, greetings, Karim. Tarek, greetings. Thank you, and uh, thank you to all the participants joining us today. Did, did you vote, Karim? <laughs> I, I voted and I voted with my heart. So I voted two votes, yes. Mar marvelous, marvelous. Okay. So, so we're going to get into uh, our discussion for today. And, and Karim is, is joining us from Cairo, as always. So today's guest is one of the Arab world's most distinguished journalists. And one of the 
world's most trenchant commentators on Arab affairs. Mina Al-Urebi is the editor-in-chief of The National, which is a newspaper based in Abu Dhabi that has become one of the best English language sources of news and analysis on the Arab world and on the broader Middle East. Mina has had a rich and varied career in the very few years in which she's been on this planet, including a stint as the Washington DC bureau chief for Sharq al-Awsat, which is one of the largest circulation Arabic language newspapers. Uh, and this is a publication for which she also served as assistant editor in chief. She has interviewed countless newsmakers and broken really important stories, particularly on the ongoing saga in Iraq, of which she is a native and where she spent a chunk of uh, her globe-trotting uh, childhood. Amina is uh, such a, a journalist of distinction and renown that she's been recognized by uh, many uh, global organizations. She is a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. She's a member of the Board of Trustees for the American University in Iraq, in uh, Soleimani. And she is also a former Yale World Fellow. So we are really in the presence of a very distinguished and special person. We're really great, uh, thrilled that she could join us. Thank you, Mina. Thank you, Tara. You're very kind with a lovely introduction. Okay, so let's get into uh, our discussion. We wanted to start, Mina, with a discussion of how you see the state of the United States right now. Um, at, you know, I've been... Uh, watching obsessively, as most of our uh, 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 viewers and listeners probably have been too, the latest twists and turns in the election. And here we are, two days after the election, we still don't know uh, who has who won. And even though this is a moment of, uh, of high anxiety, it's merely one moment of high anxiety in what to me feels like four years of moments of high anxiety. And so, you're somebody who's been watching the United States for a, a long time. What would you say has most surprised you about the last four years in this country? Wow, the last four years have been quite the roller coaster. And I'm sure for uh, many Americans, it has been a roller coaster emotionally, uh, politically, economically. Of course, when we agreed on the date of the 5th of November, we thought we would be talking about the next president or a second term uh, for the Trump presidency. And here we are not really knowing um, where we're going to go. So the roller coaster continues. Um, but I guess what's most surprising in the last four years is that that constant shock that we would have about something that President Trump would say or an accusation that would come about, that's only you know, maybe eight years ago would have stopped the news cycle, would have led to resignations, would have left, led to per perhaps investigations, didn't. And so that change in what is acceptable politically, what is acceptable in political discourse in the United States, um, that surprised me. I mean, that I find most surprising, not the exact events in themselves or the statements in themselves, but that there are no real repercussions. And I think, again, what we're seeing with the elections and the very narrow margins between the Democrats and the Republicans is that for a lot of people, it's acceptable. And actually the fact that Donald Trump has been able to get more votes shows you that he is popular. And this wasn't a blip. And you know, certain people analyze the 2016 election a certain way. And this shows that it wasn't a blip, the 2018 uh, congressional midterms 
also showed it wasn't a blip, but this is really a, a confirmation of that. So I find that actually quite surprising that, that it is such an hour difference. Um, but again, you know, my, my native country is Iraq, but my adopted home is the UK. And when I look at what's happened to politics in the United Kingdom, the fact that unfortunately at the moment, the prime minister is somebody who acknowledges that he lied during the Brexit campaign, and yet there is no accountability for that. And that's now accepted politically also surprises me greatly. Do you have a diagnosis, by the way, for why this change has happened? Why is it that we are now in a, in a universe in which you can have political leaders who lie with impunity and their supporters still love them and they still come within a hair's breadth of, uh, of winning uh, re-election? You know, it's a number of things. Lots of people have analyzed it. I think part of it is that people have a sort of resentment for what they consider to be the establishment, whatever that means. There's a sense that politics hasn't delivered in, in both the UK and the US, hasn't de delivered on people's aspirations. Um, somehow, somebody like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, both, both gentlemen are very, very entitled and have lived very privileged lives, can, can say that they are outsiders, even though they are from the very heart of the establishment, especially the privilege um, that, that both have enjoyed throughout their lives, and yet they can come and say we're different. And it's really, we've gone from the soundbite era to an era of say the most outrageous thing, break norms and precedents, and that's supposed to be change rather than actual tangible reform or political change. And, and part of it is 24-hour news cycles and social media and a way to change the public discourse in a way um, that allows some of that to happen. I mean, we could talk about this uh, for many hours, you know, the impact of what people see as globalization and a threat to their identity. And so wanting someone that says, yes, I feel that pain, I agree with you. And, you know, um, pretending that you can hark back to an era that really has passed us. The world has progressed for good or bad. Um, and, and somehow people want that to hear politicians that will say to you, we can change this. We can take you back to a time when you felt safe and enclosed away from all the changes that are around you. And I don't think many of our societies have figured out how to deal with the incredible changes and the speed of change that we're living through. So Mina, if I could add, just to pose a follow-up to that, I mean, given this unpredictability in American politics and everything that has accompanied it, uh, the polarization, the unrest in American cities, the inability to deal with the uh, pandemic, and now, of course, the, the current uncertainty in the elections, it, is it your view that all of this has uh, undermined America's reputation uh, in the Middle East. And, and by that, I mean both in, in terms of those in the region that look to America as a model to aspire to, and those that look to the United States as a superpower for protection or for uh, addressing the region's many problems. You know, I think uh, the latter part, the idea of a superpower and looking to the United States to address its problems, um, that's probably changed some time ago, uh, partly. And I did promise that I'd not continuously come back to Iraq, but you can't take away the fact that what happened in Iraq from 2003 onwards changed people's idea of the United States, not necessarily just because of the 2003 war itself, but how the occupation was conducted and the 
colossal failures that happened there, um, I think made people realize, hang on, we thought this is a superpower that would sweep in and, you know, like remodel the country, even if they disagreed with the premise upon which the war was uh, launched to start with. But still, that, that you know, failure um, changed quite a few people's minds. Um, and then I think during the Obama administration, everything from you know, Syria, I'm sure most of the people listening to us here have heard this many a time, you know, the red line in Syria that then was crossed and nobody seemed to care and this differing about, there was no real sense of um, the United States being interested in, in acting in the superpower or, or actually using the power that it does have um, an influence. And so, of course, and again, the Trump administration, that's another chapter. But then the COVID-19, uh, I don't know what to call it except disaster, on many levels and the way that it was mishandled in the US, yes, made people think the first part of your question, thinking about, okay, the actual ability to deliver for their own people, forget this about, you know, role in the world. And this is a philosophical question, whether does the US want to be the world's policeman or not, et cetera. This is about the competence and the ability of the United States to deliver for its people. And I think that's made a lot of people pause. Yes, for sure. You know, the natural follow-up to that is, you know, broaden a little bit beyond the reputation of the United States. And what do you think that the last four years have done, if anything, to the Arab perception of democracy as a desirable form of government? Um, you know, democracy. I mean, I think the, the last four years in the United States have in some ways made people question democracy, but also, again, things that have happened in the region um, have questioned people about the ability of actually the ballot box solving much um, at all. And I think it's more, you know, the institutions, the importance of institutions. People have thought about that. And I think the way, I mean, and, and what, this is part of the reason these elections are so important will the institutions be able to maintain their what is left of their resilience in the face of Donald Trump's aspirations? That'll be something to watch. And so I think that in a way will question people, will, will make people question how much can American institutions withstand all the chipping away that's happened over the last four years. Um, but I think, again, the view of democracy in some ways, yes, what happens in the United States impacts people, but it's again, when people look um, towards Brexit, uh, there is a general sense in, in uh, our world, you know, why would you want to leave the European Union? Um, and, and well, it's a referendum, people voted that way, despite the fact that it wasn't, you know, well-informed uh, people about how the actual process would happen. So that's raised a lot of questions. Um, and I think in the United States, there, the question is about the impact that not only the president can have, but the impact about ideology and the fact that we see those divisions in the United States being very ideological now, rather than these are policy programs, this is what people will deliver, you know, watching the debates, you know, people would pay attention, not everybody, but quite a few people would pay attention to what happens to the debates in previous uh, presidential elections. And, and, you know, that's what you want to see in other and more countries in the region where people are actually debating ideas. And this is what we want to uh, implement for our people. And this is our, our policy program reform program. And you didn't have that this time around and last time around too, but especially this time around, it was much more, you know, personal attacks and so forth. So that, you know, that's disappointing, but it almost feels, you know, the amount of, I'm sure many of you have seen some of the jokes in the Middle East going around like, you know, we now have to teach the Americans how to do this. And we have to teach Americans how to have political discourse and we have to teach Americans how to do elections. And 
you know, it's said with a lot of cynicism, of course, and, and somewhat disappointment. Yeah. So the, the, this obviously um, has implications for the role that the United States has traditionally played uh, in the region. And it seems to be that the widespread consensus that that role is changing. I mean, some characterize it as a withdrawal from the Middle East. Uh, some characterize it as a, a diminishment of American influence uh, in the region. So how does the region adjust to this? G given that the United States has played such an outsized role uh, in our region, how does the Middle East adjust? You know, I moved to the UAE uh, three and a half years ago. Um, and it was actually the first time that I lived in the Arab world as an adult. I, you know, I left as a child and, and living here has, has taught me a lot more, even though I used to visit, you know, every month I'd come to the region. But living here, I realized how different the Middle East and the Arab world is from one country to another. And the circumstances between so many Arab countries are so different um, today. And whether that's because of their own domestic situations, whether it's because of the alliances they have, it's much more varied today than I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so, so it's hard to give an answer, you know, you, you want, I want to give you a nuanced answer almost. So it's hard to give an answer, a, a general sweep, partly also because it didn't start with Donald Trump. Um, you know, the, the Obama administration made it very, very clear that they wanted out, they wanted to pull back, you know, people who follow American development, society, so forth, realize that there's also fatigue in, um, in the United States from war, the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war. And so unfortunately, this idea that American military disengagement leads to American political disengagement is of concern, especially for the countries that are impacted militarily. Um, and that doesn't mean just, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, but also, you know, countries in the Gulf where actually American military uh, security guarantees and so forth come with heavy political engagement. But what we saw during um, the Obama administration and, and parts of the Trump administration is this idea that we want to pull back, we want to pull back our troops. And, and that came with more political disengagement, which is concerning, because frankly, nobody particularly wants to have American military presence, but what they realize is that Americans don't have troops on the ground, they're not really going to be that engaged. And of course, ISIS and, and that whole period of time with ISIS, you know, was proof that in the end, it needed to be an American-led coalition that came in and, and really um, and really galvanized the countries that were needed to be galvanized in order to, to end ISIS's at least territorial control in the region. So it shows you that when needed, America still has that power, can use that power when it wants to. And so I think um, this is a very long-winded way to answer a very complex question, but to say that I think in the region, there is an understanding that when the United States wants to be involved, they will be, and they are still the greatest superpower. The problem is they're busy, they're not interested. You know, there was that whole conversation about the, the Asia pivot during um, the Obama administration, which I think, frankly, if it hadn't been for ISIS, probably would have been much more pronounced than we would have seen it. And again, people in this region are very aware of the rise of China. Um, and that's, you know, I think often in, in the United States that has a very negative tone. In this part of the world, it's a mixed, uh, it's a mixed reaction to it. And there is a sense of there is this rising superpower. It will counterbalance. But 
culturally what we're familiar with is the United States. It's beginning to slowly, very slowly change in certain parts of the Gulf that are getting to know China more on a people to people relationship. And again, we see it here in the UAE much more. But generally in the Arab world, China really isn't that well known. And so for them, it's more comfortable. And you know, the United States is almost like better the devil you know. Um, and so there is that sense. But I think this, this disengagement is concerning because there's a sense if there's a vacuum, someone's going to fill it. Is it going to be the Russians, which we kind of saw in Syria? Is it going to be the Chinese? Um, the Europeans are quite disengaged. Of course, you would hope that that vacuum is actually filled by countries of the region. And we do see certain countries have much stronger, uh, let's say, uh, or more uh, robust foreign uh, policies than they did, again, 15 years ago. And that is partly driven by the United States saying, I want to see regional countries taking care of their own backyards. And again, that didn't start with the Trump administration. It's been happening for some time. And, you know, I do think that in some ways, the, the forever wars, so-called forever wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have had such a toll in the United States, not only domestically, but also their image. And people understand the United States wants to pull back that they worry about an isolationist America because, again, who's going to play that role? So if you look, uh, Mina, at the two candidates who are you know, currently vying for the presidency, although I guess with every minute it becomes clearer who's going to win, um, which of them represents the type of, uh, in, or the prospect, the greater prospect for the type of American engagement in the region that you want to see? That I want to see? Yeah. You know, I'm, I, again, single issue voter, if I was a voter, I, single issue, Iraq. Um, I'm very concerned about the possibility of a Biden presidency because of the position that um, Joe Biden took as senator in 2006, 2007, where he advocated uh, for the breakup of Iraq. And he had this, you know, this famous op-ed in the New York Times 2006, and then 2007 was in, um, you know, was at the UN trying to lobby countries to support this idea. And, you know, this crude division of Iraqis along Sunnis, Shia, Kurds, even though the country, of course, is much more varied than those three groupings. And also those three groupings don't necessarily want to live um, in these boring, homogenous uh, entities to be created. And there was a similar kind of approach towards Syria that really wasn't uh, a sectarian uh, conflict, especially in its, and continues not to be a sectarian conflict. This is not about sectarianism. But especially as it began, um, there was a different approach and, and Vice President Biden and the people who worked closely with him really didn't see it that way. So there's a concern that we get a, a, an administration that looks to the region as Sunni Arabs and Shia, which I think is terrible for the region. That's not how we really are. Um, and, you know, President Obama spoke in those very terms many a time. Um, we doesn't, didn't Trump, that doesn't, doesn't Trump also speak in those terms, though, Mina? Now, this is, well, this is what I was going to say. To, it, it, Donald Trump doesn't actually speak about Sunni Arabs and Shia. Partly, I think he's not interested, like he doesn't go into that much complexity and detail, and is much more transactional. And I think this is the difference. The, the Trump administration, if there is going to be a President Trump, so there's on the one side the image of uh, Joe Biden. We'll see what he's like as president. We'll see what lessons have been learned. And I think certain people that are close to the Joe Biden uh, team have learned lessons and, and you know, do, do understand some of those things that happened during the Obama administration. We haven't even talked about Iran, which we will come to. Um, they will be different. With Donald Trump, it's just much more transactional. 
it's, it's crude, but in some ways, because people have felt so disappointed in the United States, they're almost like, yeah, I can deal with that better. Don't try to fool me. Don't try to tell me that you care about my welfare because you don't. I mean, this is what many people on the street will say. Um, you know, people will say, you know, this thing of the United States saying we are value-based. Well, then how do you explain so many policies, full policies, whether it's Guantanamo, whether it's Iraq, whether et cetera, et cetera. So people, unfortunately, feel disillusioned despite loving the concept of what the United States stands for, you know, everything from this idea of aspiring for happiness, aspiring for constitutional rule, et cetera. All of it is not actually happening on the ground. And so I think that tarnished image of the United States, which again, I repeat, genuinely is not just the last four years, but the last four years crystallized. Mm-hmm. Um, this tarnished image is then, you know, um, reflected on what people are expected from the United States. So with Donald Trump, it was almost like, what you see is what you get. I'm going to tell you I'm going to do this, you don't like it, but at least I'm not trying to sugarcoat it for you. And so there was, it was almost, I don't want to use the word refreshing because that's the wrong term, but it was almost like, okay, at least I can deal with you that that transaction. Now, there is concern, of course, about Donald Trump and many, uh, many of the actions that he takes, but on the flip side, there was a sense of he understands the, the, the concerns that many Arabs in the region have. And again, I think certain people think it's only the Gulf countries, but actually no, you know, from Lebanon to Iraq to, to Syria, uh, the concerns about Iran's aspirations and expansionism in the region that really under the Obama administration was swept under the carpet. You know, I would, um, I would interview officials in the Obama administration. And when you raise this concern about Tehran, what are the Iranian regime's expansionist plans, whether it's in Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, and otherwise, but particularly Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, it was never taken seriously. And it was the sense of, oh, there you go, the Arabs are just scared of this, you know, non-existent boogeyman, where the reality is, you know, from the militias to, to the weakening of the economies of these countries, et cetera, et cetera, it wasn't taken seriously. And of course, um, the year and a half of secret talks that were happening with the Iranians, you know, you, you had Arab officials that were meeting with senior level of officials that were saying, yeah, it's just the Europeans are speaking with the Iranians and everything. And suddenly these talks were actually happening in the backyard in Oman in secret, which, you know, of course, uh, understandable that a country wants to go and, and negotiate in secret so things don't get leaked and so forth. But at the same time, you have your decades old allies suddenly feel like, oh my God, you've thrown us under the bus. And of course, again, I bring up Syria. I think the Syrian people were, were genuinely betrayed. Um, and you had uh, the Obama administration saying one thing publicly and promising the opposition one thing and behind the scenes um, having a different agenda and really prioritizing the nuclear deal. With Trump, you know, this, this idea of saying, you know, nobody wants confrontation region. We don't need another war. So I think this idea, whenever people thought, oh my God, this could get to, to a war status, nobody wanted that. But there was a sense of at least tell the Iranian regime that its expansionist policies wouldn't be accepted. You know, the strike against Qasem Soleimani in January, nobody would have thought that would happen. That changed the dynamic inside of Iraq in certain ways and also changed the dynamic of um, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps inside of, you know, and, and, and what they're trying to do in the region. Again, is this the way to solve things? No, but it's a different dynamic. And for people in the region that are genuinely concerned about Iran, there's a sense that at least we have a change in tone where it isn't just let's appease um, the, the Iranian government or, or appease the officials. Let's actually you know, deal with these very serious problems, especially on um, the militia side. 
Now, in the middle of all of this, and I will stop talking because I know you have other questions, but in the middle of all of this, we had the developments in Iraq and Lebanon, where you had a genuine uh, grassroots movement of young Iraqis and young Lebanese going out, demanding reform, demanding change. You've had the incredible changes in Sudan, where again, very brave young people going out. And you know, I think many of us can't believe we're coming to 10 years since the uprisings in you know, uh, of course, uh, Tunisia and then Egypt and then Syria and so forth and everything that's happened since then. And so to see another wave like that and what does that mean? And in some ways the U.S. not claiming, not claiming to care and lead the movement and then abandon people halfway through. It's almost like, okay, guys, we're going to have to try to figure this out ourselves. But at least there was that push um, domestically. And I think it's, it's, it's a healthy um, it's a healthy movement that's, that's happened in both Iraq uh, and Lebanon that we have yet to see, but the outcome of it will be impacted greatly by what the next American administration does with Iran um, in more ways than one. And so there's, there's, you know, it's a wait and see moment, but still, I would say that the United States has so much more power than at the moment it, it is using. Um, and that power is not the mighty military power because we know it can use it when it wants. But actually, yes, and Algeria too, Sultan, thank you. Sorry, I forgot. Um, and, so, and so I think the United States does have a certain power of influence, of diplomacy, can, can convene, and the Trump administration hasn't been interested in, in playing that role. But, but, but Mina, the question was to ask you to compare Trump and Biden. So you mm -hmm. want a U.S. that uses its diplomacy to convene, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. quickly, Biden, Trump, which one is more likely to do that? Oh, Biden, for sure. Right. But I'm saying, like, the jury's out of whether they're interested in doing that. Right, right, right. You know, the, the question, that the, the point that you raise about Iran, and then I know Kareem wants to, to jump in. I mean, but just very quickly, because you do identify a real distinction between the two parties, really, on their view of Iran. And I think, you know, the criticism of Obama in the Arab world was that he didn't take Iran seriously or, in fact, may even have, have had a soft spot towards the Iranians and, um, and looked um, with disdain upon some of the uh, uh, Gulf countries. We, we're, a, do you think that is a correct read of the difference between these two parties? And it sounds like you do. But then if you do think it's a correct read, where do you think that comes from? Wow, okay, trying to figure out where the Obama administration's approach on Iran comes from is something that I actually try to do quite a lot. Um, and you know, there's, how do I say this um, without, okay, let me, let, me try to, let me try to explain it. I think genuinely there were certain people on the Obama team that thought that Iran is a great civilization and that given the chance, you know, this whole thing of, you know, they love rock and roll and if only, you know, we opened up a bit to them, they'd love us Americans and, and they really would be our natural allies. Um, and I think actually the Iranian people, um, you know, just like anybody else, would want to have decent relationships with, with their neighbors before they had great relations um, with the Americans, but also, you know, have suffered so much from their regime, but also sanctions and so forth. And I, and I have to say, I'm one of those people that detests sanctions, again, because of what it did to Iraq and what it does to, to people. It never really actually harms governments and, on the contrary, helps um, smugglers and so forth. 
And so under the Obama administration, there was a tightening of sanctions on um, the Iranian people. And then there was, of course, these talks. And I think there was a sense um, with the Obama administration, firstly, that the, these are great people and actually we should open up with the government. And they were, of course, so against regime change. And so they said the only way is to be able to talk to these guys. Second, it was clear that the Obama administration came in wanting to make deals with, with our enemies. Let's, and in some ways, they're quite similar to the Trump administration with that, of trying to strike deals with our enemies and, and getting this legacy. Um, and then third, I think there was a sense of, again, this very sectarian view that it's Sunnah and Shia, and actually we have to talk to the Shia because the Sunnah have been our buddies for too long, which is so wrong, you know, to, to have that prism of sectarianism and looking at entire countries or groups, like the amount of times you would hear Barack Obama say the Sunni Arabs, the Sunni Arabs, it's like, what is this identity that's being imposed or, you know, the Shia being imposed on, um, on people and, and really pushing this kind of sectarian uh, religious agenda. And so I think it was partly it, that that is part of trying to explain what um, the administration came with. Of course, they will say that their biggest concern was the nuclear issue, which, frankly, in the region, you know, in, sitting in countries where having a nuclear power in Iran is is hugely problematic. People understand that, but this idea of trying again, I think Obama came to things very much theoretically. And theoretically, it's the nuclear program. So if we isolate it from everything else and we just negotiate on that, then you deal with that, and then you can deal with other things. It doesn't work that way. If only life were that simple, if only politics was that simple, especially in this part of the world, that you can just isolate and decide this is the only issue I want to talk about. And so I think it was partly that. I think for the Trump administration, a big part of it is that there were um, people in the military who served in Iraq, but also served in Afghanistan, but particularly in Iraq, who, who have said to me, that more of our buddies, our men, died by IEDs that were planted on the road by Iranian-backed militias more than, than the other side, let's say, or the other side. And they wanted to put an end to it. And I think for many of them, they fought in Iraq and they felt like we've lost Iraq to Iran and we're going to bring it back. Now, whether they were actually able to live or whether they, they, they went through the hard politics, this is the problem. You have to get involved in the politics. You have to send ambassadors that are willing to go through the hassle of working at the, at the minutia of these things. I don't think they really went that far, but I think that was a, a distinction. The people who were in both administrations were very different. So, Mina, it, it strikes me that um, much of this conversation that we're having now revolves around issues of foreign policy, and, and rightly so, I think. Um, but I, I want to ask a, a question about how you think the region relates to American society. So th this election has clearly revealed that the United States is a divided country. Uh, more and more people talk about two Americas. Is it your view that uh, the region identifies with one more than the other? And, and I know this is a, a very general question, so I, I leave it to you to parse it however way you want. But I'm very curious, do, do you see a distinction between uh, Arab elites uh, as they relate to these two Americas and Arab uh, general public opinion? Uh, especially the youth and, and how they relate to uh, what, what's, what's happening in terms of the changes in American society? Karim, great question. Um, okay, I'm going to approach it in two different ways. 
and I hope I'm going to capture what you're asking. So one is, is there a difference between elites and, and the people in terms of how they view the United States? Yes. And, and that's also divided because I think you do have some young Arabs who still feel an affinity towards the United States, have either stayed there or their parents to be there or, or like the idea of American culture and what it stands for and the society and the fact that, you know, you can go and, and you know, make an American dream and so forth. I think there's that, but there's another Arab view that's actually quite resentful of um, American foreign policy. And even in their society, um, don't see a lot of the things that people who know the United States or who, who appreciate kind of like the, the variety that is in the society. And so actually are quite, um, I wouldn't say anti-American, I think that's the wrong term, but are quite cynical about it and, and think, you know, better. If the United States is in decline or if the United States is going away, let it go like it's better for us so i think there is that division but then on the elite side for sure i think the vast majority um of rulers in the in the region want to be on the, in the good books of the united states um want to have a relationship with somebody you know a president that's not going to lecture them on human rights how they should be ruling and so forth they i think they find it insulting and i think they again they point to well look at your own problems in the united states now and so actually feel emboldened to say yeah deal with your own problems don't come to us and so they see these societal differences, divisions, problems, you know, everything from the protest movements to, um, you know, the woes of dealing with COVID-19 and everything. So I think there's been a change of, of, of dynamic there. How long it will last, I don't know. I think unless the United States pulls itself up again, there will be that sense of, I don't think you're in a place to lecture us. I want to just approach it from another point, which is this idea of democracy and the United States being some sort of beacon. I think for, again, that, that has changed. It's not in the same way. And there is, for some young Arabs, a disappointment in that because actually they still think we want to aspire to that and they, and they like things that they see in universities, um, research technology, this idea that you can actually make something happen in the United States, you can make something of yourself. And I think that still is there. There is that sense that you can, you can, it is the land of kind of dreams. But at the same time, that split of society of seeing people shouting, you know, wanting the Muslim ban, um, being xenophobic, not open to refugees. And that's why Canada, I mean, Canada has such a good reputation now, you know, America's losses, Canada's gain. Because almost that, that respect and kind of aspiration, I think, now goes towards countries like Canada, New Zealand recently with its leadership, um, more than the United States. That's such an interesting observation because I certainly uh, think you're right when you're talking about the average Arab citizen's view of the United States. But we know that the Arab leadership loves the administration that implemented the Muslim ban and did all these things that you say are losing people popularity with, uh, uh, losing America popularity with the average, uh, with the average uh, Arab. And, and I understand why the relations between Arab leaders in the United States are so good. It's, as you said, it's because they feel that Trump's transactional nature which I might find as leading to kind of unpredictable behaviors, these leaders have decided, no, they can deal with that and they can understand that because it's just about what's the price. Yeah. So I guess the question though is, if you are right that the average Arab citizen is very uh, uh, 
has is less enamored of the United States now because of some of the things that the Trump administration did. And they're seeing their leaders so cozy with the Trump administration and doing things like the Abraham Accords and, and other uh, kind of Trump uh, initiatives. Does that actually mean that this, this gap between the, that the, the Arab citizens might actually um, uh, think less of their leaders or, or be a little bit more disgruntled with their leaders because of this, of this uh, gap in, in terms of how, the, how they perceive the United States? Honestly, Tariq, I don't think we can talk about the Arab citizens. I mean, if you speak to Great. regular Iraqis, yeah. um, again, I go back to Iraq, don't kill me. Um, if you speak to regular Iraqis, they, their thought process is so different from what your average Emirati is thinking because what they're, what they're going through is completely different and what their countries are delivering for them is so different and what their leaders are delivering for them is different. So I think it's an element of your trust in your leadership and from that, who they're making alliances with, what decisions they're making, all of that. And unfortunately, um, in too many of our Arab countries, there isn't that trust in leadership that they actually know what they're doing. Um, and in certain countries, a, a very small minority where there is genuinely legitimacy through competence, and because leaders are able to deliver for this is, is repeatedly time after time in their challenge, there is that trust that, okay, if you think Trump is the ally we need to have, or actually if you think Xi is the ally we need to have, or Putin is the ally we need to have, we trust you because you, you've got it figured out. There are very few Arab leaders who can claim that. They do exist, but there are a few ones who can do that. In, Unfortunately, other parts of the Arab world, it is that relationship with the United States that feels like, you know, and, and that's changed, but, you know, for many years, it felt like you're actually only in your position because the Americans are backing you. If the Americans take their hands off you, you will crumble. Now, again, I think in the last 10, 11 years, a lot of that has changed in the region, um, but it's there. So, so I think for the average Arab citizen, we are going through so much that that, that thought process almost has become like, uh, a talking point, water cooler conversation, but actually doesn't doesn't touch people so much because the issues that people are dealing with domestically exacerbated in this year, of course, with COVID nineteen and the economic woes. But I don't think it really it really delegitimizes leaders. So, so you know, it's funny. Last week we uh, spoke to uh, the former prime minister, and I guess he was also former vice president of your country, uh, Ayad Alawi, and you know he was spinning for us his. Um, sense of how the, you know, the, what he wants the United States to do. And he, one of the things that was really important to him was that the United States really needs to finally solve the, the Palestinian issue. You know, the Abraham Accords aren't going to do it. We can't ignore the Palestinians, etc. And, and um, your comments lead me to think that he, you would think he, he, you would probably say he was, um, mouthing an old piety of the Arab world, but the fact of the matter is, again, you know, per your diagnosis, uh, Arabs don't really care about that issue so much. And as long as their government, well, 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 as long as their government is competent and you want to do whatever you want to do on this issue, go ahead and do it. No, 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 no. I don't think that's true about Palestine. That's not what I was saying. But I was saying about their relationship with Trump. 
So that's different. Okay, but what about this? Okay, uh, this particular so issue. Accords. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Abraham Accords is different. You, you didn't ask your question directly about the Abraham Accords. I included which, it okay, in my so question. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think the Abraham Accords is different, and and that is, I think it's different because it, it's not about does Palestine matter or not. It's about, and this really pains me to say, and again, I say this. Uh, it pains me to say it, that actually the Arab world has failed the Palestinians repeatedly, time after time after time. And I think it's easy to say, you know what, it's the Abraham Accords. If it wasn't for the Abraham Accords, we were going in the right direction. I mean, it is a mess. It has been a mess for decades. I think that the Palestinians have been sold out time and again by the very people who claim to defend them. You know, Gad Alawi, who I know and I have a lot of respect for, so I'm not going to comment on his commentary. Um, but all I will say is that so many Arab leaders will, will, you know, wax lyrical about Palestine and the importance of Palestine and have done zilch, zero for the Palestinians. And it became so convenient to say, you know, that's what brings Arab unity. When the Abraham Accords were, were signed, I was interviewed on the BBC and they brought with me somebody I really respect. I won't mention who it is, but, you know, people may have seen this interview. Somebody I really respect who said, you know, the Abraham Accords, Maratis, I promise you, he said this live on TV. American said the Maratis broke Arab unity, and I and I and I almost burst out laughing on television. And I was like, "What? Seriously? Like you think up until this moment the Arabs are united?" And it's and I say that like I'm not saying it lightly. I'm saying it lightly to you because we're having this conversation. But it breaks my heart. Like guys, come on. Like please, let's get real. Let's let's be honest. And, and again, this goes back to the transactional relationships with with Trump. It's with saying things clearly and saying, actually, this is where we're at. This is the reality of it. And the Abraham Accords, this is you know, a, a, an Emirati uh, decision. We've seen the Bahrainis doing similar things, the Sudanese similar things. And, and they're, not, you know, they're not claiming to say, we no longer care about Palestine, Jerusalem doesn't matter, UN Security Council resolutions don't matter. But UN Security Council resolutions have been trampled back and forth by people. And nobody seems to be doing anything about it. And so I don't think in any way the average Arab citizen doesn't care about Palestine. I think the average Arab citizen really can't deal with the slogans anymore and can't deal with it saying that if we just ignore that problem, it's going to resolve itself. And meanwhile, we'll feel good about ourselves because we say we care about it. So what have we done about it? You know, Mina, I, I, I hear from what you're saying a very, um, what I think a healthy dose of um, uh, introspection, uh, Arab introspection uh, the, uh, about the Palestinian issue. So I, I, I want to build on that and, and, and ask you a broad question about um, how the, the Arab world um, can um, fill this vacuum to deal with the region's problems, right? A, a lot of the criticism in Arab discourse towards the United States uh, is, is very legitimate. I mean, Arabs criticize the United States on issues of foreign policy, but, but there, the, the criticism from the American side, and you heard this especially during the Obama administration, is, well, we're not seeing much leadership from the Arab world on these problems, right? We're not seeing a, an Arab vision to deal with issues such as Iran's nuclear program, the conflict in Syria, the Palestinian issue, the situation uh, in Iraq. You know, wh where is the Arab uh, leadership on, on these issues? D do you feel um, that 
the, 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 there is now a, a changed situation in which the, there is an Arab momentum uh, to address these issues. And if so, what role should the Arabs seek from the United States to support that leadership, to support that vision in dealing with the region's problems? You know, Karim, um, I think that you're right that an Arab voice is missing. And one of our biggest troubles in the region is that we've never been able to come together and actually say, let's be united, not in slogans. Let's be united in mutual interests and benefits. Let's find where are those cores. And again, you know, people have said this so many times, and it's so true. If we were to look at labor markets, if we were to talk about food security, if we were to talk about, you know, customs regulations, all these things, if, if the Arab world, if Arab leaders at different times had actually come together and said, how can we build those uh, infrastructures? Because people to people were so close but it's really, it's the politics and so forth. It's, it's, it's putting the, that infrastructure to say, actually our combined future together brings us closer together than our trying to undercut each other or hurt each other. And the sad thing is now we have countries from within themselves fighting each other. And again, you look at Libya, you look at Syria, you look at Yemen, you look at Iraq, you look at Lebanon. And while, yes, uh, some of it is external um, intervention and it is other countries, but at the end of the day, unfortunately, it's people from within their own countries, the Palestinians, um, not being able to draw a line and say, you know what, I don't agree with you, but I'm going to find a way to work with you because we need to save our countries and then we need to save our region. And unfortunately, we haven't had that. And again, you know, I studied history and part of the reason I studied history was to be able to be a journalist to try to figure out what on earth happened and how are we here. And the more you, you learn about um, the history and the modern history of our region is unfortunately there were so many opportunities where we could come together, but instead leaders pulled apart and whether it's competition, whether it's jealousy, whether whatever it is, rivalries, and we continue to live through that. So <clears throat> again, as somebody who wishes, I could say the Arab world should come together it, it, it unfortunately doesn't. Um, the Arab League, in, in theory, should play that role, doesn't, um, and hasn't been able to. However, if we were to say a miracle happens, Arab leaders got together and actually said, let's figure this out. Let's not be broken, because actually, if you think about the human resources, the natural resources, the strategic location that we're in can make us one of the strongest, if not the strongest region in the world, this is what we would want from the United States. I think what they should be telling the United States is, you have strategic interests here, and we know what they are. One is the continued supply of oil and energy supplies from the region. Even if the United States is self-sufficient, they need a world economy that works, and that means the continued flow of these energy resources. And you, the United States, care about terrorism and extremism, and the United States care about ensuring Israel's place in the region. And those are the three major strategic interests of the United States. And okay, based on that, what do we as the Arab world want? We want stability. And how does that stability come about? We, went to, we want technology and R&D, and we want to be able to rise up and meet, I mean, the technological changes that are happening in the world, and we are just recipients. Very few countries in the region, and the UAE is one of them, that actually doesn't just want to be a recipient, wants to be part of that change, that huge change that we're going through. Um, and we, so we want you as the United States play the role, but also we want you to, yes, Israel is strategically important for you. And yes, you want to fight terrorism. At the same time, it can be at the expense 
of our countries and we can't be at the expense of, of the people of those regions. So this is what we need to, to maintain our stability and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get to that point where you're going to have the, the, the leaders of the 22 Arab countries come together. I mean, it would be great if the leaders of one country, of the countries that are currently conflict-ridden, could come together and agree amongst themselves, um, let alone to bring the whole region together. So, you know, I'm despondent. I guess part of it is because I see the opportunity. I mean, we miss every opportunity that's possible out there, but also, you know, there is a fatigue in the United States from the Arab world and from the problems of the region. So it's very hard to turn around now and come to an administration that's going to be dealing with the impact of COVID-19, the economy, um, internal divisions. People, you know, Arabs are aware of all these problems that are facing the United States. To turn around to them and say, hey, come fix our problems when they have so many of their own. And also, we've kind of missed every opportunity that was given to the region. So, so Mina, we, we want to open it up to questions from the audience, but let, let me just conclude with a question on Iraq that I think follows up on Kareem's question to you. It may even be the same question asked in a more pointed way. So, you know, you wrote a column about the American election and its impact on Iraq. You called Iraq the country where U.S. elections matter as much as they do in America. And where you ended up in that article is you said, look, whoever wins the presidency, he should, quote, aim to support the Iraqi state and its institutions as the most effective way forward. And I guess what I want to ask you is, what would that look like exactly? And how would you convince American policymakers and the American people to bear the costs of that? Why should they bear the costs of, quote unquote, supporting the Iraqi state and its institutions? Okay. Wow, Tarek. You know, you say this is going to be the last question before you open up. I'm, I'm going to talk a lot here. So forgive me, just cut me off. Because when it's on Iraq and what we can do to help Iraq, I can't stop. So cut me off when you need to. Okay. So first of all, um, bearing the cost. I mean, I know this is repeated forever in the United States about the cost, the financial cost. I mean, the the, the personnel cost and the lives lost, that's, that's something I respect and I, I wouldn't, um, you know, try to belittle that. The financial cost, I mean, okay, first of all, a lot of the money that the Americans spent were going to American contractors and to the American military, and there are many um, weapons makers that became very, very rich, and there are lots of contractors that became very rich. So it wasn't like, you know, America came and spent trillions for the Iraqi people, and they didn't know how to spend it. So that's just the first, in terms of the, the financial cost. I don't really think there's a big cost. On the contrary, I think there are a lot of, lot of very rich um, Americans out of, out of the war in Iraq and, and the ensuing conflict. However, um, what does it look like? When I say support the institutions, what happens time and again is that we get a prime minister and the United States like, he's the one and it's always a he. He's the one, we're gonna be able to work with him. He's a reformer. Let's find three uh, ministers in that government that we like and they speak in English so we can get on with them. Half the reason they couldn't get on with Maliki at the beginning was because he doesn't speak good English. So it frustrated people. But anyway, let's find these people that you know we can see eye to eye. And, and we're going to support them and they're going to make the changes. And in that process, we'll undercut institutions, won't we'll work at, okay, well, what is the, the, the legal thing to do here? Or for example, let's look at this grouping. The Sunnis should do this, the Kurds should do that. Whereas actually, if you wanted to support the institutions to say, how does Iraq as a country work? We will only speak to the foreign minister on foreign affairs. I mean, everybody's the foreign minister in Iraq. The head of parliament acts as foreign minister in Iraq. So they undercut, and by the way, the Americans aren't the only ones, but they're the worst at it. They 
undercut the actual institutions by dealing with the people that they're comfortable with and they play them off each other. So stop doing that. Think about what is the long-term um, institution building in the country that doesn't rely on one person or two people that you get away with and then they change and they're not what you hoped for, Chalabi being a prime example and others, where it's like, it's not the characters, guys. It's the actual country and institutions. That's the first thing. The second thing- But wait, but, 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 but Mina, your institutions are weak. You know, that's, yeah, a, that's a hallmark of a country with weak institutions, that there are different players who have power and the United States should deal with all of them. If the United States followed your policy prescription and said, okay, we're only gonna deal with the foreign minister. Well, Russia isn't gonna do that. Russia's gonna talk to all of the people in Iraq who have power. China isn't gonna do that. So okay. your prescription is not realistic. Okay, so first of all, the institutions are weak because the Americans took apart Iraq's institutions 2003, so first. Second of all, um, you can still do that. We have a president and we have a prime minister. You know, with the president and with the prime minister and every other country actually doesn't hold half the sway that the United States has. Only the Iranians hold that sway. And the Iranians have their guys on the ground. So I disagree. I think if you deal with the president and the prime minister and everybody goes through, through them, it would actually support them. Second thing I would say is that you can help Iraq's institutions by ensuring that whether it's money or support or so forth, actually goes to state structures. For example, when the United States decided that it's going in in the coalition to fight ISIS, suddenly they were arming everybody. Like I, if I went and had five of my chums and said, hey, we're a new militia and we're fighting ISIS, here you go. We're gonna support you. We're gonna ensure money comes to you. We're gonna ensure that weapons come to you. That's how you undercut the state. Whereas if you say, actually, we only believe in the army, and, and you guys can do whatever you want. I used to have American generals argue with me that militias are not a problem. Look at us, we have the, the National Reserve. I'm like, these are not reserve forces. These are actual militias on the ground. So there was, there was an active idea of we can get different groupings and let them fight it out against each other. The third, and again, I really can't take very long time. The third thing I'd say when I say support the institution is look at the civil service, help with capacity building there. That never happened. Um, bring in the expertise that the United States does have, and they're not the only ones, the Europeans equally. Bring in the expertise that is sustainable. Don't say, okay, we're going to bring 10 people, train them, and let it, and, and that's it. No, make it sustainable. Help with it. It's long, and it's boring, and it will take a long time to help with the educational facilities and to support Iraqis that are trying to reform parliament, our constitution, which was brought in in 2005. It's been 15 years. It's meant to be a reform. Nothing's happened. Put political pressure. The Americans have incredible power if they wish to project it. Put political pressure and say, reform that constitution that has half of its articles up for, for debate. So I would say, I think there's a lot that the U.S. can do, and it has much more power, not military, it has much more power on politics and influence than it can be bothered to use because it is more, it is easier to just, they get that guy, we kind of know him, we'll tell him what to do and, and be done with it. So, so Mina, I, I think you've just, you've opened up so many potential lines of discussion, but we should open it up for uh, our uh, audience to ask you questions. So uh, w uh, just uh, to our uh, uh, listeners, just raise your hand in the uh, Zoom uh, participants window and I will call on you in the order in which you appear. And the first hand, is from Dr. David Patel of Brandeis University, our most gifted scholar of Iraq. Uh, go ahead, David. So th thank you, I, I greatly appreciate your, your comments. It's good to see you again, especially your comments on the 
Biden administration, all these folks who are coming in with him will have, have personal relationships with the Rockies. So everything you said about engaging with institutions, nothing there. So my question is very Iraq specific. And so I, I apologize in advance. And I'm gonna ask you about Muqtada Sadr. And the, the unsophisticated question is what the hell is he doing? The more sophisticated version is, Looking back from 2014 to now, how he's reacted to the rise of the PMF, how he's reacted to the rise of the protest movement, how is he positioning himself, right? What's, what's he going at both in the medium term and long term? And how should we both within the region, but also the United States, think about his role in Iraq, especially saying what you're saying about institutions? And kind of a build on to that, if you had a one-on-one -on -one interview with him, what, what two to three questions would you ask him? Oh my God, can I start with the questions would I ask him? Um, do you feel guilty about all the people that your militia killed? I mean, does it ever make you pause and say, I have blood in my hands? And he does. And unfortunately, he's not the only one. We have so many of these militia leaders that um, really delved in sectarian strife um, and did it as a way to become warlords and have some control inside of the country. So my first question was, do you ever feel guilty about it? Um, and I guess my second question to him would be, what is your end game? Because I can tell you from afar, it's really hard to understand his end game. Some people will tell you from he wants to be a religious leader. He wants to be considered an ayatollah and somebody whose word is gospel. And that's it. And other people tell you, no, he has huge political aspirations and he wants to be, you know, Khamenei in three decades time where he calls all the shots when he can. Um, I think at the moment, Muqtada Sadr, like many people on the ground, are thinking about the elections and how they can control uh, parliament in different ways and what are the, the deals that they're going to strike before the elections. And I think Muqtada Sadr wants to ensure that he's seen as one of the people that's out there on the streets. When uh, the protests started and young people started, there was a good there was a good proportion of them from uh, from Muqtasadr's followers. That's changed. Um, a lot of people now feel that he actually has manipulated the protest movement, um, but I think he's wary of that. He doesn't want to be seen as part of the establishment, as part of the problem. He wants to say, "I'm part of the solution. I can deliver <clears throat> young." Uh, patriotic men, predominantly, very few women, I think, are in his uh, movement, um, who will come and, and at my bidding, go and protest a million, and I can pull back a million people from the street. And that gives him power. That gives him power that very few people who are in actual positions of power have in Iraq. Um, a lot of these uh, leaders, so-called leaders, wouldn't be able to, to get you know, 50 Iraqis to actually support them if it wasn't for their nepotism or patronage networks. So I think for Muqtada, his end game is to say, I am a true leader here. I have a following on the ground. I can move the street. Um, and he wants to be able to have a say in things. His relationship with Iran is, is a love-hate relationship. And I think he doesn't want to be beholden to Iran in any way. Um, but he knows that he'll need them at certain points. So he, he tries to maintain that relationship. And ultimately, for him, it is about the role that he will play in Najaf and what happens after Sistani passes away. Um, and that relationship with the Marja'iya, but I think he really, really wants respect. Great. Um, so uh, again, folks who have questions can just raise your hand in Zooms. If to find the raise hand button, just click on the participants button at the bottom of the screen. There's a question here in the chat, Mina, 
about Iran. Uh, and the question is, do you believe that there could be a detente with Iran that could help, I'm quoting here, facilitate a peaceful resolution of the humanitarian crises in Yemen and Libya? Or is it a zero sum game, this person is asking when it comes to Iran? I really hope there is a detente and I really can't see why there can't be. Um, so really, again, Realistically, it's hard to see how you can turn some of the dynamic that's happening in the region in a grand bargain. You know, some people tell you this could only be resolved if, you know, everybody sits at the table and everything is resolved in one sweep. And I don't think that will happen. I think the way you can do it is actually to find uh, particular uh, points of entry that can create, uh, build some confidence and can create a dynamic that calms down the tension. You know, last year in 2019, we had the attack on the Aramco facility. We had the attack on the tankers in the, in the Gulf. And there was really a sense of, oh, my God, this could actually now start escalating. And I think the Iranians were really testing the Americans. Again, this was not necessarily targeted at any of the countries of the region. You saw the countries of the region immediately saying, you know, calm down and wanting to bring down the, 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 the heat that was created by those attacks. So there has to be a detente. I don't think there will be this grand um, deal that everyone talks about, but I think the Iranians have to see it that it's in their interest. And I think in the region, you'll find a lot of people do feel it's in their interest, but there's very, very little trust. And how do you build that trust? And that is a role that you would want the United States to play, but I think it's very difficult. European countries could play that role, but until now, from the Arab point of view, European countries have largely wanted to uh, appease the Iranians, look at possible um, deals with Iranians on, you know, whether it's uh, it's gas or other things. So I think there are there is a need for a mediation, um, but it's possible. It has to be possible. It's the only solution in the long term. You know, you could you could raise the question of whether the Abraham Accords make that long term solution more or less likely, um, given the you know new strategic cooperation between many of the Arab countries and Israel, I think that may constrain the kind of uh, detente that you're calling for. Okay, the next uh, person I have is uh, Sultan Saud al-Qasimi, senior fellow of the Middle East Initiative in addition to many other important things. Thank you, Tarek. Thank you, Mina. Mina, I wanna ask you about um, two countries you're quite familiar with, the UAE and Iraq. Um, after a couple of decades of the Gulf states sort of ignoring Iraq and uh, letting it be. The UAE, I think, um, has uh, uh, re-established connections with Iraq, but not only politically, very much so culturally as well. Um, I think you come originally from the town of Mosul in the north, and the UAE is funding the construction of uh, the, uh, one of the main mosques in Mosul. We also saw the Minister of Culture visit the uh, uh, visit Baghdad, and I'm not sure where else, but what, how can you explain this dynamic and what would you advise both the Iraqi and the Emirati sides to, to consider in this new relationship and how can we strengthen it? Thanks, Sultan. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you asked me about two countries um, that have a lot uh, in common in terms of historically many Iraqis have come to the UAE and uh, I'm one of them and prospered and found that they, and there are a lot of cultural commonalities and feel very much at home. And likewise, I think for many Emiratis that I see, especially from an older generation, they remember the Iraq of old, there's a nostalgia for Iraq and there is a respect, I think, um, for, for many Iraqis, and there's a sense of, again, those people-to-people -people ties, I think are very much there. <clears throat> You're right, for, for quite some time, from the Kuwait invasion in 1990 up until 2003, and then the war, and, and, and the problems that came with that, there was a real pullback from Iraq. Then there was this sense of, actually, we need Iraq to strengthen as a country. Uh, Iraq can be an economic powerhouse. Iraq, you know, nearly 40 million people now can't be just ignored. And there's a sense, especially with ISIS and the rise of ISIS, that if you continue to have these festering problems in Iraq, they're going to continue to be, um, you know, taken across the region and, and could really get exported to the rest of the region. And so there was a change in dynamic. Um, and I think also uh, the UAE, and again, its 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 foreign policy is very much thinking. Okay, so how do we how do we use the the respect that people have for what the UAE has been able to accomplish? And I think <clears throat> when you talk about the the support from the UAE, fifty million dollars to rebuild a Nuri Mosque. Uh, this is a mosque that has the leaning minaret of uh, Mosul al Hadba, that is a symbol of what Mosul was. When the UAE went in, it wasn't, they said, we're going to give this much money. They said, we want to rebuild Al-Hadba because they understand the, the psychological impact that has. Um, they knew that they, they could give that financial support, but it wasn't just financial, it was cultural. It was to say, we understand your pain. We understand that your identity is being targeted and we want to help you. And it's part of the UAE's wider approach of saying, we have to do something that pushes back against extremism. That's not just the military side, you know, and they've done different initiatives of that. And this is a way to say to, you know, the leader of ISIS choosing that mosque to declare that false caliphate in 2014 and then blow up the mosque, say, we're going to rebuild it and show there's a different way of living together. So in terms of, of advice and where to go, it is that it's that cultural approach that says, we feel your pain. I think we have so much trauma in the region, Iraq, and I speak as an Iraqi, there's that trauma. But for a lot of these conflict-ridden countries, there is that trauma and that, that saying, we feel your pain, um, shows uh, Iraqis that, that there is there's really good will and there's no, you know, there's no benefit to the UAE in terms of building this mosque beyond understanding that you know, its place in, in the region um, is, is to, play, to play a role beyond just the, the we'll give aid on boxes with the flag showing and so forth. Um, my final point is, so, so to your point about advice, I think it's continue building that people-to-people -people, uh, relationship to, and, and help Iraqis come out from the isolation that was um, imposed by being embroiled in conflict for so long. Um, and I guess for the Iraqis is, you know, live up to your promises also. Sometimes with our politicians, they'll promise the world in these meetings and they disappear and there's no follow-up. And we've seen that with a number of Arab countries. There was a, a sense of, of anger that they, they didn't follow up. So live up to those promises. And also, you know, unfortunately, and it pains me to say this in Iraq, there's so much corruption. So, you know, some countries have stayed away, not wanted to do joint programs because they're like, it's it, it, the level of corruption is overwhelming. So my one request or piece of advice to Iraqi officials is pull back from the corruption and again, safeguard the institutions by making sure funds are delivered where they need to be.
Okay, the next question that we have is from Dr. Gary Seymour, the director of the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis and a great uh, friend of our program. Go ahead, Gary. Thank you, Tarek. Uh, well, it's great to see you again, Mena. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation, really insightful. I have a question about U.S.-Saudi relations. For the sake of, an, of argument, let's assume that Biden manages to squeak out a victory. And we know during the campaign, he's been very critical of the crown prince and the war in Yemen. Now, of course, what a candidate says during a campaign is not necessarily a good guide to policy, but I think it's a safe bet that Biden won't be making an early trip to Riyadh. Uh, and at the same time, as you said, his focus is gonna be on domestic American issues. So there's a strong incentive not to rock the boat and cause, and not pick a fight. Uh, with Saudi, but at the same time, Biden has said he wants to try to resurrect the nuclear deal, which obviously will make Riyadh very uncomfortable as well as, as other Arab countries. So how do you see, assuming Biden wins, how do you see uh, U.S.-Saudi relations going forward? Um, great question, Gary. Um, and I think it's because a lot of people are asking themselves, what does this mean for um, Saudi-US relations? You're right, I think um, Joe Biden has been very critical of Saudi Arabia, not just during his campaign. I mean, years back, he's been, he's been probably one of the most vocal in his criticisms of Saudi Arabia. Um, but also that concern, and unfortunately, people always see it that way, that okay, if we're going to um, start building ties with the Iranians, it means that a pullback from Saudi Arabia, and I hope that's not the case, because frankly, it's not just Saudi Arabia, you're talking about the GCC, but also wider Arab world, and that would be quite concerning. Um, so if we just talk about Saudi-US relations, I think there are still those strategic interests, and I can't imagine Biden or the very smart people who are working around him are going to want to unravel the alliance just to pick a fight. Um, but I think you will see the need for both sides to, to build that relationship. And I think the Saudis are very aware of that and you know, have a brilliant ambassador and, and very smart um, officials that will work at who, who, could, who do they know. And they know some of these people, of course, from the, from the Obama administration. So build those relationships, but there will be that effort. Um, I think the wider picture is for the stability of the Middle East, for trying to do things in the Arab world, we need to have that relationship with Saudi Arabia. So I don't think anyone's gonna be like, okay, we're just gonna cut them up and not talk about them. And again, as you said, the president is different from the candidates, so there will be certain realities. The concern is if the idea is that for us to have a nuclear deal, we're going to go and deal straight with the Iranians and no lessons learned. I don't think you can go back to the JCPOA and just say, okay, let's reverse the last four years and pretend. And it, the region has changed in many ways um, since then, and also that there were issues with the sunset clauses and so forth. And I think that lesson has to be learned. Whether there is appetite in Iran, and let's not forget there are, of course, elections coming up in Iran, and there's going to be a lot of slogans being thrown around in, in, in those quarters. Whether the Iran is going to be open to have a, a wider conversation, whether there will be interest, we don't know. It is a wait-and-see approach. But I hope that the relationship with Saudi Arabia is not colored by this push for a nuclear deal, because actually it has to be how do we try to stabilize the region, and, and that will mean Saudi Arabia is vital. You can't ignore Saudi Arabia, regardless of what you're, you know, what you what you think of um, certain members of the leadership there. 
So, Mina, if, if I could maybe ask you a final question uh, along maybe the lines of your, your uh, response to Gary. You know, you, you were absolutely right when you said it's very difficult to speak of an Arab world, right? There is no Arab consensus on, on these issues. But th there is a group of like-minded Arab countries, you know, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, uh, to a certain extent, Bahrain, uh, usually referred to as the Arab Quartet. Uh, there are differences, of course, within this group, but in, in general, they have a, a common view, a uh, common general view towards the region. How should those countries uh, approach and prepare for a Biden administration? I mean, if these countries were to take a proactive agenda to Washington about the region, what would they say? Wow, Karim. Um, you know, it's interesting what you say about the quartet, because you're right. I mean, that is the nucleus of the sort of alliance that can bring countries together based on interests, based on what they would want. I think first they have to go and say, we know that the United States is not responsible for fixing all our, our affairs, because I think there is a sense amongst the Democrats of saying, don't come to us with your problems, go, sir, you know, get your houses in order and so forth. So I think they're there, it has to be, the approach has to be, we're coming to you with a proposal of how we can work together or where we see opportunities. I think the new administration, if it is a Biden administration, will be looking for opportunities um, to will be looking for ways to, you know, uh, improve, let's say, the United States image, but also not fall into old habits. And whether those old habits were during the Trump administration or previous administrations, they will have to come with innovative thinking. Um, I would say, off the top of my head, two main things. The first is to come to that the United States invested so much in um, and has a legacy there and can't ignore and can't ignore because it borders with Jordan and Turkey and Syria and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, you know, and Iran. What are you going to do? So I think to come and say, you know, we know that you have uh, an interest in, in, in Iraq rising up and we want to be able to help there. There are already, you know, conversations, whether it's an industri industrial zone with the Saudis and the Jordanians, whether Egypt just had a very high level delegation go and visit. Um, go and visit Iraq and, and sign some MOUs and so forth and say, okay, we want to create industrialized zones, we want to, to, to support industry, we can, we can look at, you know, oil pipelines to Aqaba and so forth, we want to make it happen because these sorts of projects get talked about and then shall talk about and shall give something that shows that we're willing to put money into this, we're willing to put thinking and we're willing for the United States to be our main partner because actually China and Russia are very interested in that. So give an edge in the region, that's not about come and solve this war or come and make peace here or whatever, and it gets them bogged down for months and months and months, and there's no wins. Give something that gives a win. So in my first. Um, my second is actually the whole um, situation in the, the approach towards Iran. And to say, actually, our, our concern is how do we stop more war in the region? How do we make sure that our high level levels of unemployment amongst our youth are dealt with and so forth. And we know part of that has to be to calm down some of these conflicts. So we're willing to do one, two, three to show goodwill and build trust. You can go to the Iranians and see what they're, they're willing to, to do in return. And I think that would, that would change the dynamic of being, do we go back to JCPOA? Are we talking about the nuclear power and everything? 
I think they should come with a proposal and say, actually, we think this is what's possible and, and we're willing to build trust by doing these things. What would the other side do? All right. We, we are now uh, at the end of our uh, time, unfortunately. Uh, I think that we could probably, Mina, uh, talk to you for several more hours about any of the topics that uh, we've raised. But I believe our audience now uh, completely understands why you're one of the most distinctive and sought after voices uh, today on Middle Eastern affairs. And I dare say that if you had decided to make an a side living being a commentator on American affairs, we'd probably tune into you before we tuned into most people uh, who, uh, who talk about the United States. So I wanna thank uh, Karim and I think uh, on Karim's behalf, I hope that once this COVID-19 nightmare is over, you will visit us both in Cairo where Karim is and in Cambridge uh, where I am. So I hope we'll have that uh, opportunity. Um, thank you, Mina. Thank you, Tarat. I just want to say um, I'm genuinely honored that you asked and thank you for all the great questions. And I have huge respect for what you're doing. So thank you for having these conversations. Thank you so much, Mina. And thank you everybody for joining us. It is really, your questions are fantastic. And we hope that you'll join us next week when we speak to the Lebanese journalist, Raghida Dirgham. But for now, let me again, thank you so much, Mina. And thank you everybody for coming. Thank you for listening. This has been Middle East Matters. I'm your host, Tarek Masood. Special thanks to Patrick and Daniel Lazor for music and to the incredible team at the Middle East Initiative, Julia Martin, Ava Weber, and Michaela Bennett. To stay abreast of new episodes, please subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other quality streaming services. See you next time. <laughs>